You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. Hi, this is Hunter Keegan. Welcome back to Bipolar Recorder. We got a great episode for you guys today. I had a friend of the show come on. Her name is Rowan Hart. And she is an author who I met through Twitter originally. She lives with bipolar disorder as well as some comorbid conditions. And we had a great conversation, not just about the illnesses themselves, but also about relationships when you live with those types of illnesses. Hi everyone. Tonight I'm joined by Rowan, who is an author and blogger who I originally met through Twitter. And she's been so kind to come on the show and speak with us a bit about her experiences with bipolar disorder and relationships. And I've really been looking forward to this. So Rowan, I just wanted to turn it over to you and let you introduce yourself. Uh, sure. My name is uh, Rowan Hart. Um, I have um, rapid cycling bipolar one. Um, I also have um, ADHD, OCD, generalized anxiety disorder, and CPTSD. Um, so just a whole slew of things. Yeah, a lot of people who come on this show, myself included, do have co- uh, comorbid diagnoses as mm-hmm. well. So. Um, OCD seems to be a pretty common one with people who I've spoken with so far. Um, and I think that's interesting. And then you were saying you have ADHD as well. That's another common one. I have ADHD too, uh, in addition to bipolar one with psychotic features. So, um, definitely very interesting conditions to live with. When were you first diagnosed with bipolar disorder? Um, so I was diagnosed with the the whole slew of everything except for bipolar disorder when I was about 22. Um, and then I was not actually diagnosed with bipolar disorder until I was 27. Okay. So there's a really, there's a really big gap. I, uh, I, I had thought um, when I was much younger, when I was a teenager, I had done the research and I was pretty sure my mom was bipolar and I'm pretty sure that I was bipolar and I had gone into, uh, into therapy uh, when I was 22, uh, 21, 22, um, right before I got my initial diagnoses um, with like, like telling the therapist, you know, I think that I have bipolar disorder. And um, she had kind of combated me a little bit and was like, oh, well, that's interesting because I think that you have ADHD. And, you know, mm-hmm. having both, you know, how many like crossover symptoms there are between ADHD and bipolar disorder. Um, with the exception of like psychosis and and the sleep feature of bipolar disorder, um, right. almost every single other aspect kind of crosses over in some capacity. Um, so they did the testing. Uh, they diagnosed me with all of the the other stuff and um, had told me that there were spikes in um, my like bipolar disorder categories, um, but that they were not uh, they were not going to concern themselves with that because it was probably just the crossover symptoms. That is that is expressly what I was told. Oh um, my God. So I uh, I got uh, you know I'm I'm not a hypochondriac. I I believed the doctors when they told me what they told me. Um, and then I got increasingly more irritable over the, the next several years. Like I just got, I was so grumpy. I was the grumpiest person in the world. I, I don't know how people lived around me. Um, and I ended up kind of having a mental breakdown and that's, that's how it always goes, you know? Um, and had to go to uh, see a psych and um, I was diagnosed officially with uh, bipolar disorder. Uh, the same day that my mom was actually diagnosed outwardly, uh, she was diagnosed posthumously the same day that I was um, wow. through, you know, um, a lot of discussion with my psychiatrist. Um, and uh, yeah. That's a very interesting story. So it took the doctors a few years before they really started listening to you and reacting yeah. to what you were self-reporting. So that must have been frustrating. 
Well, and that's that's unfortunately just so common too. Right. That that people try to advocate for themselves, but they're just not heard or they're not listened to. Yeah, I I agree completely. And when you say you had a breakdown, was that the result of a manic episode or a depressive episode? Um, that was the result of a a series of episodes back and forth, but um, the the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, was a depressive episode. Okay, interesting. And were you hospitalized for that or were they able to catch it early enough? Um, I was not hospitalized for it. I, <clears throat> I am fortunate in that I have actually never been hospitalized for my bipolar disorder. Um, I, I am not saying that uh, that makes it less severe. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that makes me stronger than other people. Um, I am just fortunate in, in that capacity um, that, I, that I have been able to have some kind of wherewithal and, and, and push through it, at least to the point where I, I could get by even if I wasn't really functioning. Yeah. Well, more power to you. That's awesome. I, I'm glad to hear that you've never been hospitalized because that can be an extremely intense experience. Um, yes. I, yeah. I have been hospitalized and um, it was not fun. I, uh, I don't have a whole lot of good things to say about it. But um, did, did they change your medications at the time that you were diagnosed with BP? Or have you been mostly on a stable cocktail of medications over the years? Um, I was not actually taking many medications. The only medication that I had that was prescribed to me before I got my bipolar diagnosis was the methamphetamine that I take for my ADHD. Um, and I had actually not been prescribed that for several years just because I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have insurance. I wasn't seeing a provider. Um, that's part of what led to the breakdown. I, I wasn't in therapy. I wasn't getting, I wasn't medicated for anything. Um, and, and so when I got, uh, when I got the bipolar diagnosis, um, they, they put me on Lamotrigine, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a, a starter drug. Um, and starter drug. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what it is for bipolar disorder. They always try it like really early on. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful drug. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, they put me on Lamotrigine, uh, really low dose and, um, dosed me up on it, uh, over the coming couple of months after that. And, um, since then I have kind of rotated in and out of different kinds of medications. Right. And Lamotrigine is a mood stabilizer. It's, uh, kind of similar to lithium in that sense. I also take Lamotrigine. It's also called Lamictal. Um, I, I took lithium for a while too. Um, but lithium for the two or three years that I took it actually caused some pretty bad side effects. So I switched over to Lamictal around, um, I don't know, three or four years into my diagnosis and I've uh, found it to be pretty helpful too. So I'm glad it's working for you as well. Um, so to shift gears a little bit, the audience, uh, probably doesn't know this, but you and I originally started chatting because you had written a really cool short story called Loving Bipolar that, um, you, you sent over to me on Twitter when we were taking solicitations for a mental health advocacy site called, um, BP Swing Sets. And in this story, you talk about your relationships while living with bipolar. And I just was wanting to ask you what inspired that story. And maybe if you could give the audience a quick breakdown of what it's about and what it means to you, that would be awesome. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, The story is um, kind of a look, a a small look back on my relationship with my mother, um, which was very rough, both of us having bipolar disorder that was undiagnosed and untreated um, was kind of a uh, tornado zone. It was it was very disastrous um, and we did not have a good relationship. Um, and at the time of writing the piece, uh, she had, uh, she was dead. Um, so that, that helped with um, kind of the feelings of it, being able to put the feelings out there for everybody to see them. Um, but more so the story focused on um, this relationship that I had um, with this person that I call E um, in the uh, piece. 
Um, and E is another person who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, so we both had bipolar disorder. We were both dating and um, it was kind of a, 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 a microscopic look at the really, really fantastical things about our relationship. Um, I had actually, uh, when I wrote it, I, I had actually just gotten dumped, I guess, by the guy that I wrote it about. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, he, he did the whole, now you see me, now you don't bit, wherein, okay. you know, bipolar escapism is concerned. And um, he just kind of, there was a lot of pressure on him and he just kind of disappeared. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I wrote that piece, honestly, uh, crying the entire time that I did it. Um, as an act of self-care and self-love, it was um, extremely cathartic for me. Um, and a lot of people, because of the phrasing of the piece, actually think that we're still together. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that gives them hope. So I never lie, but I don't correct them if they make the assumption either. Um, yeah. Because I, I do think that bipolar, bipolar relationships are kind of a magnificent thing. And I think that while they can be destructive just like any relationship they do have a lot of capability within them to also be this really magical thing yeah absolutely so that's very interesting um writing can definitely be extremely therapeutic i i'm a writer myself so i i can completely relate to that so what were these magical transcendent times like when you were with e when you were in this relationship together? I definitely, so like a lot of people with this disorder, I am plagued with the I'm such a burden syndrome, um, feeling like, you know, I'm too much all of the time and, and, and that I am too much to handle. I'm too loud. I'm too crazy. I'm too chaotic. I'm too, you know, insert whatever word somebody wants to use to describe me. Um, and uh, that often came across as me feeling like I was a burden to the people around me, like my friends um, and, and the people who had to, to kind of quote unquote put up with me on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and a lot of that stemmed from a lot of self-loathing, um, a lot of places of me just kind of hating myself, which is also something I touch on a little bit in the Loving Bipolar piece. Um, because through, before E, I was very much in a place where I couldn't figure out why anybody would love me. Like I couldn't figure out why anybody would want to be with me um, because of, you know, my mental state. And, and, and I knew that, you know, any relationship was going to be difficult, but I knew especially a relationship with me was going to be difficult because of these extra setbacks we'll say um and I was in a very bad place um mentally I was going through what the worst depressive episode of my life actually um when I met him and it was very interesting because he and I had so much in common and and he was the only person that I had ever met at the time who gave as much of himself to others as I gave to others. And, and it was it was such a selfless place that he came from and such a kind place that he came from. And loving him, like having the capability to love him with the diagnosis that he had really gave me the capability to love myself with my own diagnosis because we shared the diagnosis. And I think that that's such a, a really important and often maybe overlooked aspect. Yeah, having that shared common ground where you can really relate to someone on such a deep level, such as having yeah. that shared mental illness, that, that can be huge in a relationship. How did you originally meet he? Um, actually, <laughs> I met him on Twitter. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm a part of an organization called Bipolar Club, and um, I met him through Bipolar Club, and um, I, we were mutuals um, before I, I joined the organization. Uh, he and I were mutuals, and after I joined the organization, I found out that he was in, like, kind of the inner workings of it when I 
became into like in the inner workings of it as well. And it was just kind of an accident. It was happenstance that, you know, we happened to be kind of same place, same time. And we had already been talking a little bit and had already been kind of, you know, flirting a little bit. And, and it was just <sighs> Twitter of all places, you know, serendipity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually um, met my current girlfriend through a bipolar support group. So very uh, cool. Yeah. So she has a major depressive disorder. I have bipolar disorder. Um, It was a it's called um, uh, Depression Bipolar Support Alliance, uh, which is a national nonprofit. And okay, cool. So yeah, that's how we originally met. So we kind of already had like this weird chemistry in a sort of way. And it, it just like clicked and we started casually dating and then the relationship became much more serious and we've been together for almost a year now. So well, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, having, um, having somebody that ha- like shares a diagnosis with you or that shares a similar diagnosis really does create this kind of common ground that is just so relieving to start out on because it's like you have to explain so many fewer things to them because they already kind of get it yeah like why don't I want to get out of bed today why right why am I all of a sudden crying for no apparent reason like these are things that you don't have to explain the way you would to a neurotypical partner absolutely how has your experience been dating neurotypical people? Have you ever had a relationship with someone who doesn't have a diagnosis? And if so, how did that go? Ooh, that's a great question. Have I ever dated somebody without a diagnosis? Um, I, I don't know that I've ever actually dated a default. I call them defaults, uh, people who don't have any um, mental illnesses don't have any trauma. They're the default factory setting, you know. Um, okay. We had some malware installed. Something happened. Um, but uh, I don't think I've ever dated a default. Um, I I think everybody I have ever dated has had some kind of diagnosis or another, or they didn't have a diagnosis, but definitely had something that okay. just wasn't labeled yet. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I feel like I myself tend to gravitate towards people who have lived experience with mental illness, just like, I, I don't know why, but it seems like whenever I am uh, creating a relationship with a, with a new romantic partner that, that it turns out that they have something and maybe it's that common ground that creates the initial attraction or something like that. Yeah, I was going to say common ground is, I think, really important, especially when you're building a very important and like long lasting type of relationship with somebody. Yeah, absolutely. And what would you say makes non-default relationships challenging? Because it's not always easy when two people share a diagnosis. No, it's often so hard when two people share a diagnosis or when two people are mentally ill at the same time, because it's, 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 it's like being sick. If, if one, one partner in a relationship has the flu, that's hard and, and it affects both partners. But if both partners in the relationship have the flu, that is disastrous. And that affects so much more than just the one partner having the flu. And that's kind of what it's like when two people who are mentally ill are going through some kind of episode at the same time. So like if, you know, I was with somebody who was um, major depressive or had bipolar disorder and they were going through a depressive episode while I was going through a depressive episode or a manic episode, then that would be something it would be very hard to kind of get around because it would be very hard for me to take care of them while I'm trying to take care of myself and for them to take care of me while they're trying to take care of themselves. And it's both hard for us to, to take care of ourselves, let alone, you know, anything else. Like we can, we can barely take care of us. Um, and it, it's, I think it's very similar in that aspect that just it's, it's a lot of stress and a lot of timing and a lot of, um, extra work I think has to go into it because you have to be intentionally very mindful and very compassionate about certain things and if you're not it just doesn't work yeah 
I, I can definitely identify with that. Um, so do you have any pieces of advice that you would give to people who are in a relationship with someone who's mentally ill or have a relationship where both partners are mentally ill? Something that I always bring up with people is the importance of communication and, and trying to be as transparent as you can with your partner about any symptoms that you're experiencing. So I, I was just curious if, if you have anything on that note or any other insight that you've found has strengthened your relationships over the years? I think when you're starting out, when you're in a, a very sensitive and vulnerable place and you're, you're mentally ill and you're trying to enter a relationship, I think it's important for you to remember that you are not a burden or a hindrance. You are not bad or broken or wrong. You have done nothing to be sorry for, nothing to be shunned for. And despite how it may look to you right now, good and healthy love is not only possible, but probable for you. And once you enter into a relationship, like you said, I mean, my, my biggest components would be good, strong, effective communication and absolute transparency. Um, I'm not saying that this other person needs to know every single detail of every waking moment of your life, but it is very important for you to be honest about the things that you are struggling with, um, as well as about your successes. And it's, it's honest to, or it's, it's good to be honest about where you are in therapy and about how the side effects of your, your medication are and how your symptoms are. And it's, it's really important that you try to remain on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really, really good advice. Um, how has, how has bipolar disorder or your comorbid symptoms affected your platonic relationships? Do you find it hard to make new friends or have, have, do you have a friend group that's very supportive and understands um, the illness? I'm, I'm very lucky. Um, I am an outgoing extrovert um, who has a couple of different disorders that make me very chatty. Um, <laughs> so I am a very friendly, warm person. Um, it is very easy for me to make friends. Um, I will say that for a big, big chunk of my life, those friends were very much surface level friends. They weren't really like long-term stick it out for the rest of your life type of friends. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when I got to college, um, when I was diagnosed uh, at university with everything that I have except for bipolar disorder, um, I was in the midst of building my community, like my inner circle of friends. Um, and I have, uh, I mean, it's huge. It's like eight people, you know, of, mm -hmm. of, the, the, of people that like really care for me and like really want to see me succeed and, and people that would do kind of anything for me. And I'm so lucky to have that support system. Um, but it definitely, my mental health definitely does take a toll on those relationships because, you know, I have generalized anxiety disorder. So sometimes, you know, I'm really anxious about um, what they're thinking if they're not communicating it with me. Um, and sometimes, you know, I have ADHD. So I have, um, I have, <laughs> I have, uh, I have people permanence issues. Um, so sometimes I just forget that people exist because they're not in front of me. And, and in terms of uh, permanence issues, I also have, because of the ADHD, um, emotional permanence. So, you know, somebody that I love can be standing in front of me telling me that they love me. And I know that because they're right there and it's concrete, but then they go to work or they go away or they're doing something and they're not actively telling me they love me and I forget, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, and it's, so it's, it's definitely um, like my specific cocktail of disorders um, has definitely taken a toll on my relationships, but I am a good communicator, um, like I mentioned earlier, and I'm very transparent. Um, and I am honest in, you know, my plight, you know, in general. Um, I won't say that it hasn't cost me, you know, loved ones, family, friends, lovers, but for the most part, the people that care about me are going to care about me no matter what. And if I can help them care about me, it makes it easier for them. 
So, you know, I tell them, you know, this is what you should kind of look for if I'm going through a manic episode. And if I am, here's how you can help me. Um, here's what you can look for from going through a depressive episode. Here's how you can help me. Um, because I may not be in my, my right mind enough to tell them how to help me when I'm in the episode. That's so interesting. That's so cool that you actually tell your friends, Hey, this is what it's going to look like when I'm in like X, Y, Z state of mind. That's actually so like, I am very, very blessed to, to have a close circle of friends who I've now known for, you know, anywhere from 10 to even 20 years. That's Uh, incredible. You know, people who I grew up with and they know that I'm bipolar. They know that I have mental illness, but I feel embarrassed talking to them about the specifics of the symptoms. I know, but I I don't want to like freak people out. I don't want to cause undue stress. So for me personally, I try to play that a little bit closer to the vest, even with people who I've known for so long. And I know that that's such a um, like strange thing. In terms of the mania and depression, is there a particular episode that really strikes out at you as being one of the most memorable um, just because of its intensity or its weirdness or anything like that? Yes, actually. Um, but before I dive into that, can I can I piggyback off of what you just said about um, keeping things close to the vest? Oh, please do. Yeah, um, I, I find that really interesting because you just you mentioned being like you know honest and transparent and stuff. Um, and and I find it interesting that you keep it so close to you. But I, it's not something that I think you should be like ashamed of. It's it's a very like it's a very vulnerable thing to share. Mm-hmm. And I I personally in my my own journey through life have been in a lot of situations where I have had to practice being very, very, very vulnerable with a lot of different types of people. And so it is easier for me than I think it is for a lot of other people for me to kind of just throw it out there, um, mm-hmm. so to speak, um, because I'm, I'm even in a place where I'm comfortable telling my work. Like yeah. I, I, I will, I will openly say, yeah, I have bipolar disorder. Here's what that's going to look like. Here's hmm. how, here's, here's what I'm going to need for you. Um, wow. You know, and I, cause I mean, some days, you know, you wake up and like, you can't get out of bed. Yeah. Or, you know, sometimes you're manic and your, your, your destination is not work when you're manic. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, they, they have to know, you know, Yeah. Um, it's just, it, I feel like it's better overall and they don't always, I'm not going to say it's sunshine and rainbows. I'm not going to say they always respond to it super well, but I mean, if they fire me, it's, it's literally an ADA violation. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that workplace component is definitely extremely complicated to grapple with. Um, just since you, since you brought that point up too, that's something that also other guests have brought up on this podcast and that's kind of a whole other can of worms, but to your point, actually, um, When I published my own book last year, a bunch of my friends bought the book. And again, these are people who have known me for for many, many years. And after they read it, I got all of these like text messages and uh, phone calls and stuff. And they were like, dude, I never knew that this was what it was really like. Like they knew that I was bipolar, but they didn't know the extent that it went to until I had actually written it and put it out in such a raw and to use your word, a vulnerable format. So I think for me, it's easier to write about certain things and then just kind of put it out there and share it with whoever's willing to listen rather than, I don't know, sitting someone down or even just having a, like a really intimate conversation with someone where you're like, listen, so this is, this is the deal with when I was hospitalized. This is the deal with the psychotic depressive episode that I went through, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that your approach is extremely brave and I, I definitely commend you for it. I think that's awesome. And thank you for your supportive feedback um, for, for me as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, and it, and I think writing too, not that it is less vulnerable, I think that it is equally as vulnerable, but I think that it becomes easier because you can kind of 
detach it from yourself a little bit. You can kind of like, it, it's not coming directly from your mouth because you can kind of remove it and put it like on a screen or on paper um, or, you know, give it to somebody else. So you kind of like detach it from yourself a little bit, which makes it, I feel like a little easier. And you also have time to like, you time to sit down and really think and like formulate the way that you want to say it. Whereas when you're having just a conversation with somebody, you can kind of like, you know, step on your own words. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely, I definitely get that. Yeah. Writing for me has, has definitely made it easier to articulate some of those more complicated thoughts and emotions that I've, I've worked through over the years. And, um, yeah, so it, it is certainly a crazy journey. And um, to get back to my previous question about your own crazy journeys, yes. to flip it back to you, yes. um, did, did anything come to mind for you mm-hmm. about like a particular bipolar episode that, that really had an impact? Yeah, um, one time I, uh, I drove to New York City from Stillwater, Oklahoma. Uh, That is a 56 hour round trip drive in one go. Uh, No sleeping, no stopping. Uh, I mean, except for to get gas and like pick up some McDonald's along the way. Um, I went to New York City to pick up a friend of a friend, not even my own friend, just to to drive that home, (laughs) to pick up a friend of a friend who was homeless And I brought him back, a total stranger to me, in my vehicle, and I moved him in with me. Wow. With with blatant disregard for how my family felt about it. He lived with me for several months. And I I was I was about 21 at the time that I had this manic episode. Okay. Um, And, you know, at the time I was undiagnosed. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I had suspicions, <laughs> um, but I was undiagnosed. So everybody just thought I was being, you know, quirky. I don't know. Um, but it was, uh, it was, a it was a bad trip. <laughs> yeah. That sounds extremely interesting on a variety of levels. You know, sometimes it's not uncommon to hear of bipolar people having like a sudden impulse to drive a long distance or engage in, uh, behavior that would be seen as um, otherwise bizarre. I actually, during my first manic episode, which also happened when I was undiagnosed and when I was about 21 years old, I did uh, take a road trip, quote unquote, <laughs> throughout, throughout yeah. the uh, throughout the United States, and I I drove about like six to seven thousand miles just all over mm. all over the country. Yeah, it was a long trip and it got me into some uh, trouble here and there, especially after I got back. And once I had returned from the trip, I was still full bore manic and still living with my family at that time. I had just recently graduated college. And once I got back, they were like, oh, my God, what is going on here? They, They weren't even sure how to react to it. But it sounds like your your own family was somewhat accepting of this sudden impulse to bring a stranger to to live with them what exactly was that dynamic like well so i'm i'm estranged from my family um now i i do not really communicate with them much um only kind of when i have to and only very select members of my family um but uh they were um they were not accepting at all i got into a lot of trouble um i just didn't care and i think that the reason that they they like seemed more accepting because like they weren't going to just kick this person out on the street that didn't have a place to live that i had just like moved in with us you know they're 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 nice they're, they're nice people in that regard um so like they weren't just going to kick this person out, but it, it, it seemed accepting, I think, because I had always been prone to doing things like that, to doing things that were like chaotic and, and wild and, and things that they couldn't understand or explain. And they were used to it um, because I, I, I didn't specify earlier, but I actually grew up with my aunt and my uncle um, from about the time I was three onward. Um, and they were used to this kind of behavior because my mom 
was mm-hmm. very similar in, in up and ups and downs. Um, so they kind of were, I'm assuming, just kind of thinking, oh, like mother, like daughter. Interesting. So mm-hmm. how did this, um, you, you said that this individual lived with you for a few months. How did that play out and how did that end? Oh, well, this is not going to frame me in a great light. Um, that ended poorly, of course. Um, <laughs> what part of this story indicated that it was going to end well? Um, I but I will say uh, he lived with me for three or four months. Um, and over the course of that time, I um, helped him apply to a bunch of jobs. Um, I helped him go to interviews because uh, he didn't have a car or anything, obviously. Um, I made sure that he had, you know, food and um, I bought him a really expensive inhaler because I didn't have insurance and he had asthma. Um, and, you know, so I, I made sure that he was taken care of and um, the situation did not end well because I, uh, the friend that I, we had mutually that I went and got this person for, um, he, uh, the, the, the person that I had went and got had, uh, started telling the mutual friend that we had that I was, um, being very shitty to him for lack of a better word, even mm. though I had done, I mean, nothing negative. It sounds um, like you were doing a lot of extremely positive and supportive things. I was trying to, um, but he told uh, this other person that, um, I was, like not behaving well and that it was not a safe place for him and his other friend got like really concerned and started like in on me and I was like I don't I don't know what to do about what's happening because I can't prove anything you know um so after like three weeks or something of that kind of back and forth mess that was happening um I basically gave this, this guy that I went and got from New York City an ultimatum. And I was like, listen, I cannot deal with this. I have done so much for you. You have not even like really tried to get a job. I cannot physically support you for the rest of your life. And you are trash talking me to this mutual friend that I really respect and adore. Um, and I just, I can't personally be in this situation anymore. Um, so here are your options. I can take you to a local homeless shelter so that you have a place to sleep and you have somewhere to go, or I can drive you back to New York city and I can take you where I can like basically put you back where I found you essentially. Wow. Um, I I plucked him from New York city. So I wasn't going to just be like, "Ah, I'm going to abandon you, you know, several States away. Um, Like if he wanted it, I was going to drive back to New York city, take him because that's my responsibility. That's my burden. That's what I did. Um, And that's the consequences of my actions. Um, and he elected to go to the local homeless shelter, um, which was like 30 minutes away um, in the next town over. And I took him there. And as far as I know, he's fine, but um, we have not had any contact. That's understandable. Yeah, it was it was messy. And I again, there was no part of that story in which you ever thought, hmm, that probably worked out well. Well, I, I was struck by just your compassion for this other person who you basically didn't know at all and you still took such strides to help them out I think that's extremely commendable thank you I I definitely feel like a bad person because of the end of the story because I feel like I I tried to do this nice thing but I I couldn't follow through and then I had to kind of put him back in a very similar situation that he was already in but in like a worse state um and uh, I definitely don't feel good about that, but I, I did do everything that I could at the time. I mean, I was only 21-ish and I was working like two or three jobs and I, I was physically extending myself as much as possible. And I mean, I had that really big manic episode. So of course, you know, as soon as I got back home and everything kind of settled, I fell very quickly into a depressive episode that was really bad and hard you know one of those like hard to get out of bed kind of ones Mm -hmm. Um, and that made you know going to work more difficult but I knew that I had to because I was not only supporting myself but now this whole other individual 
Yeah. So you had that manic impulse to drive all the way to New York City. And um, were, were there any other manic symptoms that you were experiencing at that point that you can recall? Or was it mainly the impulse to help this other person and try to do something good? Or It's been so long. All I can remember, there was, there was not any psychosis to my, to my memory. All I can remember really is just that jittery very driven like a motor feeling where you know like I like I have to I have to go I have to do something um and that um impulse um you know obviously that I spent a lot of money on that trip uh Mm -hmm. in gas alone um and uh so there was a lot of you know risky behavior um things like that uh, lack of sleeping for several days um like at all uh, for several days. Uh, but those are the only symptoms that I remember. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a manic episode to me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's definitely a really interesting story. Thank you for sharing that. Was there anything else you wanted to add about that story before we continue? No, I think, I think that I that really says it all. (laughs) You think that about covered it? I think that was a great breakdown. So thank you for, uh, for sharing that for sure. Thank you what inspires you on a daily basis? I would imagine that creativity is very important to you. Um, Would you say that's the case or are there other inspirations that you draw from just to keep yourself going day to day? My biggest inspiration is, is definitely my friends, like their, their willingness to love others, to love me in spite of, or maybe just because of all of their or my flaws. And I am inspired greatly by my own drive to be better, my desire to want to be more for myself and to like constantly be putting myself in in more healing and compassionate spaces Uh, because for a really long time in my life, I just didn't take care of myself and I didn't allow myself to be in in situations where I was um, being gently handled or or being cared for in a very nice light, um, and so definitely something that that inspires me now is just working towards a more peaceful act of of or set of acts of self care. That's amazing. <laughs> so it sounded like one of the points you were touching on is that initially it felt very uncomfortable for you to expect compassion from other people. Oh yeah. That's a really interesting dynamic. Do you want to speak a little bit more to that feeling of being unlovable or, or. Sure. I, I don't know that it ever came from a place of like being unlovable, but I definitely had um, drilled into me kind of at like a young age, I, I think just because of trauma and, and you know, mental illness and everything that um, I, I had a kind of transactional love that was expected of me in the sense that I was only lovable and desirable if I had something to offer somebody else. Like if I had something to give them or make or produce or, or, or something for them to take from me. Um, so if, if they could use me, essentially I was lovable, but if they couldn't, I no longer was, and I could kind of be cast aside. Mm-hmm. And, and that um, was kind of drilled into me, um, I think by my family at a young age, but also um, through some other relationships that I, that I had had both uh, platonic and romantic um, over several years. Um, and it was actually not until this year, uh, surprise, surprise, um, that I have been able to kind of unpack that and, and work through why I have this like transactional love kind of operational standard. Um, and also it was, it was not until this year that I really started letting people love me, which sounds asinine. I, it sounds so wild. Um, but I definitely put myself in situations where I, you know, I, I very much had like the hero complex of like having to, to this desire to save everybody else, um, which we all know you can't do. You can't save other people. You can, you can help them, but you can't fix them. And, 
And, and that was something that I struggled with for a really long time. Um, but I put myself in these situations where I was the person that was needed and everybody else was falling apart and I had to take care of them. But because of that, I never let anybody take care of me. Um, okay. and, and that was something that I really struggled with uh, for a very long time. Because as you know, if you, you don't have anybody taking care of you for years and years and years and years, you, you break down. Because I, I, I wasn't even taking care of myself you know? Um, so it wasn't until really this last year that I was kind of able to unpack that and sit, sit with those uncomfortable emotions and try to figure out why it was that I behaved that way. And, um, to allow myself to be in a situation now where if other people want to love me, I let them. Was that a discovery that you came to on your own or was that more through therapy? Um, I do, I do see a therapist weekly, um, most weeks. Um, and you know, I take my medication and everything religiously. Um, but that is something that I definitely kind of stumbled upon very slowly on my own. And then as I came across it, I brought it up in therapy. And when I brought it up in therapy, I got to kind of dig through it and sift through and find kind of little little nuggets that were really important to, to like focus on and then unpack further. Um, so I would say uh, it was definitely a combination of both in terms of healing and, and, and progressing forward. Yeah, sometimes it's like you have this light bulb that goes off in your head and then you've got to take it back into the therapeutic setting and mm -hmm. unpack it a bit further. Is there a certain type of therapy that you do? A lot of people do cognitive behavioral therapy or DBT, um, um, or, or do you just do more like general talk therapy? What, what helps you there? Um, I have done CBT, um, never done DBT to my knowledge. I have done CBT a few different times, but honestly, I'm really, really just susceptible to talk therapy. Like I... Yeah. I can go into a room with a stranger effectively and just talk about my problems for 50 minutes and feel better. Like I can leave feeling like lighter. Um, so I, I have done the cognitive restructuring in terms of like, you know, negative thoughts and, and, and intrusive thoughts and persistent thoughts and things like that. Um, but I definitely think that I honestly really just benefit from having a sounding board and I really benefit from having somebody take this situation that I'm looking at from this one specific perspective and have them spin it back at me so that I can see it in a different light that I couldn't see in my, like on my own. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I can relate to what you're saying. I think that just having someone to talk to, like when, when I do therapy with my current therapist, it, it's kind of CBT related or CBT right. adjacent, yeah. but it's really, it, it's kind of like what you were saying. It, it's useful to have a sounding board from like a licensed professional sure. who can listen to what you're saying and then like relay it back and then work through the deeper issues that are coming out. So I, I get that. Yeah, for sure. Cause I don't, I don't want to use my, my friends as my therapist. That's not exactly. fair to them. You know, and, and it's nice to have a professional's opinion. And like I said, sometimes it's honestly just, I need somebody to look at me and say, Hey, did you think about the situation from this other angle? Because sometimes I just didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't see it without somebody bringing it to my attention. And then when they, when they bring it to my attention and I can see it, it, it makes everything just make more sense. It makes everything clearer. Um, and that ends up helping me in just a lot of different situations. Yeah. Something you mentioned there that stood out to me was you said uh, using your friends as therapists. And that's something that I was very guilty of for a long time. Uh, I think everybody is. Right. I mean, in but like with more time as I've grown older and I've matured, I'm, I'm 28 years old now. I was diagnosed when I was about 21. But before my diagnosis, you know, I would I would use friends as almost like a platform for projecting my issues onto. And I don't mean projecting onto them. I, I mean, just like literally saying 
to them what what's been going on you know oh man like i think i might have been hearing voices last night or something and people were just like oh what and it it's almost in my opinion it, it it's almost selfish to do that to someone else who who's not not a actual therapist or to put that kind of heavy burden onto someone else when when they're not necessarily open to it or or looking for that type of intense conversation but it's also important to note that that is also what friends are for like they they want to be a part of your life. They want you to tell them these intensive things. They want to tell you intensive things back. They want to, it's a give and take type of thing. And as long as there is a give and a take, it's not necessarily that you're using other people as, as sounding boards or as therapists. It's just that you're being friends. And, and sometimes what it just boils down to that I've, that I've learned over the, um, over the years is that um, you, you just have to go about it in a, in a very deliberate way. So like you have to make sure that you're not just dumping on them. You're also asking about them and you're, you're honestly listening to what they have to say. Um, you're not just waiting for your next turn to talk. And you also have to make sure that like, if you do have something you want to share, that's like really heavy that you ask for consent to do that, which helps a lot, you know, for you to just be like, Hey, I have this really heavy topic. I want to talk about, it's probably going to take you know, an hour, I, I really want to talk about it. It's super heavy, but if you're not in a place that you can handle it, just let me know. That's okay. I can talk about it to somebody else. I can talk to my therapist. It's, it's not a huge deal, but I just, you know, I thought about you and I, I care about you and I wanted to share it with you. Um, and, you know, kind of responding based on what, what they have to say to that. That's, that's phenomenal. I, I really appreciate that insight. And I think definitely knowing the right way to frame things and yeah. to communicate things in an appropriate way, that, that's definitely a sign of a close friendship right there. So, For sure. That's awesome. And it sounds like you've made some real strides in the last year. And of course, everything has been impacted by COVID-19. Do you, yes. do you think COVID-19... How, how would you say that that comes into play right now? Because you've been making some really good progress, it sounds like, during such uncertain and strange times. And some people are saying that the pandemic has like severely, severely impacted their mental health, whereas others seem to be doing relatively okay. Um, well, I mentioned earlier that I'm an outgoing extrovert. So um, being an outgoing extrovert that got, you know, completely removed from all of their friends, I, I definitely suffered. Um, I actually ended up going into one of the worst depressive episodes of my life about a year into the pandemic. Um, it lasted for several months and it was excruciatingly painful. Um, I, I was impressed that I made it that far before I broke down. Uh, but at the time, I mean, I was actually living with... Um, I'm Polly, so I was actually living with two different partners, so I wasn't completely removed from all of humanity. Um, and uh, it was at the time that I um, I was removed from those relationships. I either broke up with them or they broke up with me, uh, pending the relationship. Um, and uh, and that was when I really started to suffer because I was I was removed then from kind of like all contact because we were still in the middle of the pandemic, and it was um, something that being being an outgoing person, an extroverted person, a person who has disorders that are very reliant on other people. I'm, I'm a very, you know, social creature um, and having disorders that are reliant on other people and, and interacting with, with those around me and making connections. Um, the pandemic absolutely took a lot out of me. Um, and, and, it's not as bad currently, um, even though we are still mid pandemic, don't get me wrong. Um, it's not as bad just because, you know, things are a little bit more open. I am vaccinated. I do wear a mask. A lot of the places, I live in New York. Um, so a lot of the places uh, are pretty um, strictly held to, you know, standards in New York because of how bad the crisis was in the beginning. Um, so like, you know, if you go out to, like a bar, let's say, you know, they require you provide proof of vaccination uh, for you to get in. And if you can't provide proof of vaccination, you have to wear a mask um, and things like that. And it's just, you know, so it makes it a little easier because I can, I can be a little social now. Um, but that was something that, that I definitely struggled with for a really long time. 
You mentioned briefly that you are poly. Do you want to explain what that means for the audience who might not be familiar with that term? Oh, sure. Um, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Um, I'm polyamorous, uh, so long, long term. Um, polyam for short, generally, um, uh, which means that I, um, I feel that I have a lot of love to give and um, I don't limit that to a monogamous relationship that's between two people. Um, I am open to having relationships that are between many people or having multiple one-on-one -on -one relationships with uh, multiple partners at a time. Um, so I have been in a few different uh, situations like that. Um, and it's something I'm very comfortable with. That's super interesting. And, and thanks. I, I'm aware of that um, type of lifestyle, but sure. I know sometimes other people aren't and you're yeah. the first person who's come onto the show and has shared that type of thing. So yeah, always happy to educate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, we've been talking for almost an hour now. Happy to go longer if you'd like to, but I wanted to just stop at this point and ask if there is anything that we haven't discussed so far that you'd like to touch on, or if you have any questions for me about anything. Um, I don't have anything that I want to touch on specifically. I did answer all of the questions that were presented to me. So um, <laughs> if you would like to continue on, that's totally fine. I have, I am ready. Um, and, uh, the only question that I have, I guess, is, uh, what is your book called? Because I'm really interested in reading it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. The book is called, my brain is trying to kill me. It's available on Amazon and Kindle and paperback. And it primarily focuses on a manic episode that I had back in 2015. And it, talks about uh, depression and a little bit about OCD and stuff like that too, but it's primarily based around that manic episode. And it goes into a lot of detail about the road trip that I was talking about and about what ultimately landed me in a civil commitment um, for a psychiatric hold at a hospital. So uh, it was really, really intense to write about. I drew oh, I from journals that I had kept uh, from those days. And as I read back through the journals a few years later, I was kind of thinking, well, you know, this is a pretty unique story that I think could be worth sharing. So um, that's that's just kind of how that came to be. And it was, uh, you, you mentioned catharsis earlier in writing, and it was an extremely cathartic experience. It took me, For sure. took me a really long time to write. Um, I spent probably about a year working on it, and it, it was extremely rewarding. So a lot of people who come onto this show are writers or are just starting writing for, for the first time. And um, they, they've also said that writing can be useful. So I always like to tell people, you know, um, whatever your creative outlet is, if it's writing, if it's painting, if it's music, um, you know, go for it. Use that as something to help stand on for sure. and, and battle your symptoms with. Definitely, definitely great advice. Um, yeah, no, I was just curious. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in it. Um, cause I, you seem like a cool person and, <laughs> Thank you. I, I love um, I love bipolar content, uh, obviously, for selfish reasons, uh, because I have bipolar disorder. And, you know, it's just it's nice to it's nice to see other people's takes on things and, and learn more about a part of yourself that you may not have, like, reached the epiphany about yet. Um, or like I was saying earlier, to like spin it in a, in a, in a light you couldn't see before uh, because of the way that somebody else phrased something. And I think that that's really important and, and really interesting. So I'm always on the lookout for, for, for good bipolar content. Yeah, I, I've gotten good feedback on the book. So I know that I didn't completely blow it. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, um, I had some, uh, I went to Penn State University and I actually sent the book to a couple of my old psychology professors because that's what my degree is in psychology. Oh, awesome. And yeah, so it, it's so ironic how that all came to be. You know, I went to school to study psychology and then I was diagnosed with a serious mental illness. And um, anyhow, I sent the book back to a couple of my old professors who are, you know, experts in the field of abnormal psychology. 
And uh, one of them actually incorporated it into his curriculum uh, for, their, for a semester at Penn State. And I love that. It was so cool. It, it was like the coolest thing to kind of see that the book had that kind of yeah. impact and that people were taking it seriously because I was writing it in kind of a bubble. I, I didn't really workshop it a whole lot. And I was like, I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to take a shot in the dark here. And it, it I, apparently has resonated with people, which is just amazing. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's all you can ask for as a writer for somebody to, to read something that you wrote and think, wow, that was very impactful. Yeah, definitely. Well, I just had one last question for you. Um, which is, are there any famous bipolar people who you look up to or who you think are noteworthy? Yes. Or um, per- perhaps who you do not look up to? I adore Vincent Van Gogh. Okay. And he was diagnosed posthumously with bipolar disorder. Um, and I, I had already, um, he's already like my favorite traditional artist. Um, but learning, you know, a few years back that he was, he was diagnosed posthumously with, with, um, bipolar disorder really just kind of made me look at his work in a totally different light. Um, and so I am, I'm kind of fanatical about Van Gogh stuff. Um, so that's, that's probably my, my biggest, uh, famous bipolar person that I, that I admire. That's great. Do you have a particular piece by Van Gogh that really strikes you? Um, the sunflowers piece is probably my favorite piece, um, but I don't think I have ever seen a piece by Van Gogh that I didn't like. Yeah, I, I've got a whole collection of his work actually, um, and I, it's like a coffee table book. I just like to kind of oh, flip yeah. through it when when I'm bored. And I I agree with you. There's there's so much stuff that he's done that that's just fantastic. I I really like. Um, I I hope I'm getting this title right, but. Wheatfield with crows. It's like one of the last ones that he he did before he died, and um, I I just love how creepy it is. It just has this such moodiness, such atmosphere yeah. around it, and it's um, yeah, it, it really speaks to me. So great choice. Yeah, I uh, I actually went to um, that live um, Beyond Van Gogh exhibit uh, that was in my city uh, not long ago. And, um, it was, it was beautiful. It was so, it was so moving. It was so touching. I ended up crying. I cried like five times, uh, because of just how like overcome with emotion and joy I was at like the presentation and the way that they set everything up and, and, and just kind of the story of his life that you got to explore as you went through. I have tickets for the Washington DC exhibition of that. So that's, <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. So, wow. You're, you're really making me look forward to it now. Got yes. to see when that is on my calendar. I had to purchase the tickets like six months in advance. So I'm, I'm yes. hoping it lives up to the expectations. Yes. I, I went, I, I really loved it. I think the way that they had it set up was very unique. Um, and um, it had a lot. It had a lot to give. I don't want to. I don't want to give anything away. But it. It definitely. When you get into the immersive room, it's. It's super breathtaking. That's amazing. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me tonight. I uh, again for the audience, this was on very short notice, and I think it came together really nicely. Um, one one last final thought. Um, are there any works or projects that you're currently working on that you would like to plug? Any social media where people could reach out to you at or follow you on? Um, just anything for the audience that you'd like them to be aware of? Sure. Um, I'm actually working on several different projects because I have ADHD and I can't stick to just one thing. Um, but uh, a couple of the bigger ones that I'm working on are... Um, I'm writing a love letter to my mental illness and um, I'm writing a series of love letters to each Enneagram type uh, just as, a, as an art project in um, <laughs> a, 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 an experiment in sharing uh, because you know that uh, every artist is their own worst critic and uh, I have made myself kind of uh, incorporated a bunch of people into this project because I was interviewing people and um, basically told 
31 different people uh, to hold me accountable. Um, and in a few months, I have to uh, post um, this, this work that I have done uh, for these love letters, um, even if I don't like them, which is a good, uh, a good exercise in just kind of being vulnerable and getting myself out there a little bit more. But um, yeah, uh, so my writing blog, which is mostly bare bones right now, is actually linked to my Loving Bipolar piece on uh, bpswingsets.org. And um, you can find me on Instagram at uh, Manic Depressive Dream Girl. Uh, girl has two R's. And on Twitter as Manic Dream Girl. Again, two R's in girl. Um, and that's, that's where I'll be. <laughs> That's awesome. I'll be sure to put that all in the episode description so people can go find that if they're so inclined. And those awesome. sound like some really interesting projects that you're you're working on. And I hope that we can stay in touch and that I'll be able to see them once they come to fruition. I would love that. <laughs> Sounds great. Okay. Well, thank you again for joining me. This has been great. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this installment of Bipolar Recorder. My name is Hunter Keegan. The guest today was Rowan Hart. I will post Rowan's information in the episode description, so if you'd like to check out any of her projects that she works on, you can do so. I also wanted to remind everyone, if you're enjoying this show, be sure to tell your friends about it, and remember to post on social media about it so we can keep getting the word out. We're on Twitter, at Bipolar Recorder. I am on Twitter at HH Keegan. There's also BipolarRecorder.com and my own website, HHKeegan.com. So check it all out. If you're enjoying it, tell your friends. And again, thank you so, so much for listening. Have a great day, morning, evening, night, whatever, wherever you are. Bipolar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting BipolarRecorder.com to support via PayPal. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.